Brought to you by Make Fun Network. Disclaimer. Please do not email us about the historical inaccuracies we are sure to make. We are not historians. We are idiots. Welcome to Anachronismo, where everything you hope was true about history will be made true by us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm Noel. I'm Jackie. I'm Max, and I couldn't be here today because of scheduling and such. Summer's a busy time for a lot of people. Yeah, (laughs) don't say, Max. Jackie, what question have you always wanted to ask Max, like on, on air? Like, on recording that he would never edit out. Oh, I mean, I I don't want to frame him or anything or set him up to say something embarrassing, but I don't know. know Max, how many times today have you farted and what made it worse? Oh, well, I'll tell you how many times I farted today, Jackie. I farted 11 times, and what made it really bad was just all the dairy I had that day because they came out wet and sloppy. Cool. And I pooped my pants on the ninth and fourth one. Well, how about you, Noel? Do you have something that you want to hear from Max? Ask him anything? Sure. Um, Max. <laughs> Max, Max, Max. See? It's harder than you think. If you could steal anybody's face and wear it as your own, who'd you pick? Oh, no question. I would pick Moko the dog. Everyone loves to see him. That's true. I think there are some stipulations you're skipping over, Max, about the horror of seeing a dog's face on your own face, walking around all on your bipedal legs going, oh, look at me, I'm Boko the dog. Oh, it'll bring smiles to people's faces. That's true. Now, assuming Max has cut all that out, Max couldn't be with us today, so me and Jackie are holding it down Mm -hmm. and bringing you some fun little history stories. Jackie, what what are you going to talk about today? Oh, today I will be talking about Marie Antoine Carême, a famous French chef who may or may not be the first celebrity chef. By celebrity, do you mean like a TV, like in the kind of modern sense of celebrity chef, or like in a historical like context of these recipes and style of cooking, like became famous throughout you know Europe or? Well, I mean that he's a famous chef. Um, he was too early to be around for TV and what like a food network chef like so the 1970s yeah mm-hmm. okay before the food network <laughs> yep yep but after tv <laughs> <laughs> no he's pre-tv times he's a celebrity chef in as much as you could be a celebrity chef without tv or radio so oh, nice. i mean there's still a lot there were still famous people in the yeah. past <laughs> how about you what are you talking about tonight i'm talking about a little bit of fun facts around the history of bowling Woo! It has nothing to do with the fact that we are in a bowling league and had like a bowling trivia kind of side game going on that had that question about which president was gifted a bowling alley Mm -hmm. in the White House. And I just connected the dots on the way back here that it was a bowling specific trivia question because everything else was like not bowling related at all. Mm -hmm. And I did not put together the fact that it they probably picked that trivia question out because... Because it was about bowling? Yeah. Yep. I mean, 
to be fair, it was sandwiched between a bunch of other sports history questions. Yes. So I didn't feel too bad. Yeah. So, I mean, it thematically fit with a bunch of the other trivia questions. Yep. So don't feel bad. But yeah, I will be going through some of the uh, high-level history of bowling and some little fun facts along the way. Um, hey, Jackie. Yes? How many bowling balls does it take to knock down 10 pins? One. Yeah. No, it de- uh, depends on how hard you throw it. That's true. And your aim. Yeah, and your aim. But also that, that uh, the metal bar that knocks them over. You don't need a ball ooh, to do that. Ooh. But that's... Don't, that, doesn't that bar, like, pick up the pins and then sweep the, between, like, frames one and two? Yes, but after the second frame, it just knocks them all over. So two gutter balls from Noah will equal ten pins knocked down. If only the scores reflected so much, I would be happy. I don't think you got any true gutter balls. I did, I, I had a few. I like didn't a, like I, a whole frame uh, of gutter balls. No, I don't think I had a back to back, but I got close, as close as you can get by knocking down one pin. <laughs> I did better than that. Mm-hmm. Not by much. Uh, how many celebrity chefs does it take to knock down ten bowling pins? Oh, it depends. Are we using one of their skulls as a bowling ball? Yes. Oh, then two. Okay. One to beat the skull and one to throw the skull. <gasps> That's brilliant. Thank you. But let's talk about something not skull or bowling ball related, though it's about a person. So insofar that a person has a skull, the story is about a skull. Wow. Yeah. That is profound. So when was this skull born? Along with the rest of his body and skeleton. Well, presumably he was born skull first on June 8th, 1784. Whoa. Yes? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of close to your birthday. Is that no, no. I, I, um, no, it's just, uh, like, I didn't know exactly what, like, I had a preconceived sort of ballpark thing that I was expecting him to be, like, a big, like, late 19th century or to be, like, some, like, 16, like, Renaissance era kind of chef or, sorry, is it cook or chef? Celebrity chef? Chef. Celebrity well, chef. He was a patisserie chef. Patisserie. Oh, not, okay. I was like, like well, of course he participated. He was there. <laughs> a participatory chef participatory instead of just chef. one of the console. Um, But, all right, yeah, so I had this preconceived notion that he was going to be, like, 16th century or 19th century, so he just... uh slotted into a little time I didn't expect. Well, he was famous in the early 19th century because he was only born in uh, 1784. Mm -hmm. He didn't get famous till the 19th century. Anyway, his name was Marie-Antoine Carême. And uh, apologies, listeners, uh, there's a lot of French words coming up and it's going to be bad because I never took French. Marie-Antoine Carême? Carême. I don't know. Carême? C-R-A. Nope, I already spelled it wrong. C-A-R. E-M-E. And That's there's a-, a little hat on the middle E. A carrot? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. It's a little hat. Well, uh, 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 what are the odds of that? A uh, uh, cook has a carrot in his last name, huh? That's good. No, That's it good. really wasn't. But moving on from that, an excellent name for any skull to have, <laughs> no matter how you pronounce it. Well, speaking of carrots, chefs, hats, and skulls, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he did popularize the chef hat. Oh, interesting. Yep. That what? <laughs> yep. Huh. All right. I'm gonna be very curious as to how that played out. I mean, that that whole sentence is all I know about that. Oh, okay. Ah, 
my speculation. I had this preconceived notion. No, I um I was just wondering if it was a for a practical reason or if it was almost like a style or fashion kind of. Well, okay, so I guess I know more than one sentence <gasps> about it. He wanted to professionalize the chef. So he wanted chefs to have a uniform. Oh, so okay. he wanted to make it a profession that you could identify by looking at someone like, you know, a police officer by his uniform, you know, a fireman by his uniform, you know, a... You know, you could tell landed and wealthy people from peasants by what they wore. Mm-hmm. So he decided that a double-breasted jacket, you know, that classic white jacket with the, I'm making movements on myself to, to indicate. Lapels? The fold-over part. Oh, uh, yeah, like the. Yep. Now yeah. Noel's doing that too. Lapels. So yeah. we're doing some, some good. <laughs> I don't think it's called lapels though. Like a, a double-breasted jacket. I'm outlining the breast part of a double-breasted jacket wait if it's almost like if i had a regular suit on that is called a lapel but i don't think it's called that on a chef jacket oh well hoity-toity chefs i think you think you're better than us what do you are because you're really good at what you do (laughs) today he's best known for his very elaborate and spectacular sugar marzipan and pastry sculptures that he designed and built called peace montes they were basically like enormous centerpieces made of food stuff. You probably wouldn't want to eat it because they were mostly for decoration, mm-hmm. but they were made of things that are edible. Okay. So no wax. No wax. No no wax. The versions from today are now like made of chocolate because that's things that people want to eat as opposed to like hardened paste and yeah. like, almond and crunchy sugar. Like, so like edible, it was more for the structural integrity yeah. than the, the flavor. Mm-hmm. For the wow factor, for the architectural design. His true legacy to cookery as an art is that he wrote stuff down and systematized and rationalized things. He really professionalized French cuisine in the early 1800s. So he was born into a very large and poor family in Paris and at 10 years old, he was kicked out of the house just because the yeah, house was be- too full of children. Yeah, because when he was born, the parents were like, oh, man, another skull to feed. <laughs> Pretty much. So much food fits in your skull. <laughs> ah, just ram it in there like a big, weird cornucopia. So um, two different places essentially had the same description of his early life, that he worked for six years at um, a tavern called Fricasse de Lapin. And it was described once as he was an intern, and it was described the second time as he worked there in exchange for room and board. I don't know. Same thing, slightly different descriptions. It sounds like it's a better deal because at least he gets room and board, whereas most interns are, uh, many of them are unpaid. So he got the experience and compensation for it. So Mm -hmm. he... We have fallen a long way from a, a from a, a French child kicked out of his home at ten and forced <laughs> to fend for himself, was still better enabled and in a system that was more conducive to his development than a large portion of our graduating college kids with fully developed brains and careers and expectations and family support in many cases. And man, really makes you think. Well, I mean, he wasn't really that well off. In this situation, he wasn't in like a formal apprenticeship, so he wasn't really being trained for a profession. He was just 
laboring there oh, in exchange okay. for room and board, essentially. He, well, again, he was 10 years old, so he can't really have yeah. super fancy jobs He's kind of like a cabin point. boy almost of the... Sort of. He was basically a runner, which is like the person who brings the food from the kitchen to the table um, and a busboy, essentially. So he worked there for six years. Uh, oh, he was a dishwasher as well. A runner and a dishwasher. Um, and this place, it serviced the low class. It was a very casual working class environment. This was his first job in a restaurant, but he would spend 40 years as a professional in kitchens. At 16, he moved on to work at a noteworthy patisserie near the Palais Royale, owned by a man named Sylvain Bailey. He was a famous patissier at the time, and this place really had very wealthy clientele, the who's who of Paris society at the time. Just so that our listeners know, and not me, who after watching many seasons of uh, the Great British Baking Show, I should know this, is, so patisseries, those are uh, like dessert pastries. They're not Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I was like torn between whether they were like that or like almost like kind of a uh, salted, almost like a meat pie, almost like a very... That's a pasty. Pasty, okay. But yeah, people listening, that's the difference. I mean, I don't really know. So maybe pasties are served at patisseries as well. But I think a pasty is more of a English food yeah. item. When I was studying abroad in Australia, they had meat pies. They were super popular. And there was this one just... He's kind of like... I don't know how I, I I'm trying to think of the nicest way to describe it, but he was kind of like the one of the party animal kids down there, like just you know would drink a lot and stuff. And he loved meat pies. He just had this like super Irish face, super curly hair, and he was always like ah meat pies, and just he ate a lot of them. I don't know meat pies don't hold that much appeal to me. Well, Mister Bailey, I'm definitely pronouncing Bailey wrong. It's B A I L L Y. But say it French. How do you think it's said? Bale, pile, ballet, I'm going to go with Bailey because I find that easier on the tongue. Cool. So Bailey basically saw that he had some skill and talent as a patissier as well. So he encouraged him to get more of a formal education. So at this point, at 16 years old, he begins to learn to read and write. And he develops a very sharp interest in architecture. Sidebar, I think it is Bale, because B A I L L E B A I L L Y L L Y. Oh, because I was thinking Braille for a second. B R A I L L E, Braille, Bale. I don't know. Bailey, Bailey. We're, we're Americans, <laughs> and we're here to say the best we can do with what we've got. <laughs> Pronounce it how I want, or else. Whisper names incorrectly softly and carry a big stick (laughs) but i want to shout the names bailey give me your stick it's got to be broken in half now (laughs) no the stick and the volume are inversely related no i'm american i can be loud and have a large stick wow 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 (laughs) this is what they think of us this is what i think of me (laughs) Ooh, that's yeah (laughs) <laughs> Pretty much sums up America's <laughs> relationship with every other country. <laughs> um, so anyway, he becomes extremely interested in architecture and ancient architecture. 
and he would spend his days in the library, which only was a few blocks away from this fashionable patisserie, and he would stay there for days, reading and studying up on architecture, and then he would return to the shop, and he would build these elaborate pièces montes that were inspired by the architecture. He would try and duplicate um, images that he saw in the books. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was it, really, really cool. Um, were they like... Inspired by like French, Roman, just anything he that caught I think his interest. Anything that really caught his interest. I saw some specific examples that were inspired by Roman architecture. I think he had an interest in all kinds of architecture. I would make a crumbly cake coliseum that like just kind of falls <laughs> apart as you as you take a take a chunk of it off. Mm, oh, that's a good idea. But at the time, these were definitely decorative. They weren't. Okay. You wouldn't eat them. They oh, would these be are like, like the centerpiece. A show-stopping things. centerpiece. Yeah. So. Uh, Mr. Bailey uh, thinks these are great, so he starts putting them in the windows to attract people to the windows, and he decorates the patisserie with them. And soon enough, people come in, and they're like, oh, this is gorgeous, I'd love to buy it and bring it home and put it in my table for my fancy party. And the wealthy clientele are impressed. They start reaching out to Marie Antoine and getting him to make custom creations for their parties. So he starts his own like contracting business on the side. This is in the middle of the French Revolution? Yes. Okay. Because <laughs> this sounds so peaceful and calm. And it was you saying like rich people being like, oh, I would love to have this in my house. Oh, I'm perfectly safe and free to walk about window shopping. Well, so this is a little farther down the line. This is during the Napoleon part. Oh, okay. The, so this is like 1810-ish. Yes, so yeah. 1810s. Um, so it's not as... Violent. Upending. Yeah, it's not as violent as upending the wealthy. During one point of the French Revolution, there really was an increase in like fine, not maybe not fine dining, but restaurants becoming popularized because chefs who previously had only worked for wealthy families were now out of jobs. What um, happened to their families? Um, they 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 died. Got turned into skulls. Mm-hmm. Turned to skulls. Hmm. Yeah. So they started opening up their own restaurants. And it really inc- made more of like a restaurant culture. Since yeah. The people who were trained as cooks no longer were working in households. So that's kind of oh. cool. So that's kind of, is that, so that's like one of the kind of the starting things of like just restaurants being accessible or available to uh, the lower class, just in the sense that like you had all these really talented chefs who were suddenly just out of work. and. Yeah. I don't know if I would say accessible to the lower class, but. Definitely to the lower upper class. Okay. Um, or people who otherwise wouldn't have been able to eat there. Yeah. I mean, restaurants have always existed in terms of like taverns or. Oh, yeah. Or no, I just meant more in the kind of like, I don't know how to describe it. More of the. The democratization of fancy food. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. That's the best way to put it. <laughs> or republication of fancy food, not democracy. Anyway. Marie was quoted as saying that architecture was the most noble of the arts and that pastry was the highest form of architecture. I think most people would disagree with that. All right. what? The more I think about it, the more I'm inclined to agree, actually. I guess if the art is in the decoration as opposed to the function, Mm -hmm. then I could see it. I don't... But I don't think you can separate architecture from function. Yeah, I mean, it also, like, on its face, it does not stand up because the 
highest form of architecture at this time would have been like large cathedrals or basilicas. Like how high do you think you could bake a cake? <laughs> like what? Like two and a half, three feet? What are you on, Bailey? I don't know. You could probably get a cake three feet high. Yeah. And I mean, sure. that that's like, that's just, that's nothing. That's like two or three bricks high, whatever. But what if you carried this three foot cake to the top of a large building? I then mean, it would be the highest form. Yeah, but I mean, then you could just take anything. You could just take like your carry kids, a smaller like, building to the weird, top like, of a bigger macaroni building. drawing of a of a church and be like, "Look at this! Macaroni is truly the highest form of architecture." Okay, but that is the noblest of arts. I can see where he's coming from. I mean, clearly that's what he believed. <laughs> well, it depends what noble means, right? Yeah. Oh no! You know what is the <laughs> No, no, that's also not true because architecture. It doesn't depend on what noble means. Never mind. It does. No, no, Go no. On. It it does because a lot. As I said, like a lot of churches, super tall, and they have bells in them. The nobelist art would probably be, I, I don't know, the written word, the sound of silence. Mm-hmm. There's no there's anything that doesn't have a bell. I think the other arts in this category were painting. Yeah. Music. That one definitely has bells, so it's out of the running. Painting, you can clearly you can paint bells, so that one's out. Literature? You can write about Literature, bells. Literature, you can write about bells, so get rid of that one. The Nobelist uh, that's Art. Four. Oh, there were five in the extended quote, but I only copied the short part. Yeah. But I would I'm still gonna push that mm. Nobel the Nobelist art in this case. And I could just see the pastry. disgust starting to <laughs> form in your eyes. It would be literature because you can only describe it, but like you can't, you know, you you're, it's up to you to visualize it, to hear the sound, whereas a painting is far more expressive. It could show the reaction to sound. It could show what a bell looks like, how big it is. I don't know. I do that in my mind when I read about bells. But if, I mean, but only because you've seen bells. If I just gave you a book and you had never heard or seen of a bell and it was just like, it's a big metal thing that makes a loud noise, like you, you'd have to compare it to like a tiger or a I bear mean, growling. The and... author would <laughs> describe it better than that. Maybe, but I mean, you don't know if he's writing to <laughs> if his target audience is people who've never seen a bell. <laughs> I think I think for this, you I'm getting have caught to in assume... the weeds. I'm getting caught in the weeds here. I think you have to assume that all the different kinds of art are supposed to be done by those who can do them the best. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Ah, <laughs> uh, Jackie, I'm sorry. Moving on. I'm sorry. Why do you have to be sorry? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's. This is just a very long tangent for a very small line. <laughs> so, a man, you may be familiar with him. I'm not particularly familiar with him, though one of the names that he has rang a bell. Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord. Um. He was Napoleon's chief diplomat. Um, so he took a real shine to our friend Marie Antoine. And he hired Marie to work as his personal chef. Uh, I'm going to start calling him Karem. So Napoleon basically installs Talleyrand at a place called the Chateau de Valenquet, which essentially was a house that Napoleon purchased for the only reason is to entertain foreign dignitaries. And the article that I read said that Napoleon was, quote unquote, famously indifferent to food. Who's famously indifferent? Who doesn't like food? I don't think I've ever met anyone. I mean, there are people who can't smell or taste, like actually 
whole like wholesale? have no what olfactory uh like sense but I so, guess so. but that would probably be worth noting rather than just saying like you know he was just indifferent to he couldn't yeah uh i don't know that's really weird yeah I'm gonna have to. That might be another like short anachronism. He, he probably just did something like when he was a kid that people were like, "Well, you oh you you like the taste of that?" He's like, "It doesn't make a difference to me," and he just was like worried about his reputation. And then from, he like, had to I, stick with it. For yeah, a long time. and he really like yeah. Yeah, it's hard when you feel locked into a personality that you started as a child. Yeah. Yeah. So while. Karem was um, working for Talleyrand. This is where he got exposed to the more savory side of cooking, because previously his experience had only been in patisserie. So he basically just mastered his craft while he was there. Um, And then in 1815, he left Paris to go work in London as the head chef for George, the Prince of Wales. While working for George, the Prince of Wales, he wrote his first book, Les Patissières Royales a 482 page <laughs> manual and treaty split into two volumes comprising of both sweet and savory recipes complete with line drawings um for the much more elaborate dishes wow yeah it was kind of like a a mix of his talent and his way of thinking about cooking coincided with the printing press making printing things much yeah. cheaper so it was like this this combination of technology and ingenuity and um, self-promotion, essentially, that made him a really good cookbook salesman. Yeah. Um, his first cookbook, they had to make a new edition of it within three months because it had sold out. Wow. Isn't that impressive? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how hot the Bible was selling off the old uh, Gutenberg press, but <laughs> I, it would be interesting to see if there was any, like, uh, the top two. <laughs> it's like the top... 10 books and it has to be the bible because if anything outsells it they get like excommunicated (laughs) that'd be pretty funny um from all accounts though he was uh pretty full of himself and he had a pretty high estimation i mean yeah i mean not that it was wrong but he called himself the chef of kings and the king of chefs and he included pictures of himself in every cookbook that he wrote which at the time was unusual because he wanted everyone to know what he looked like so he could become a celebrity chef yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, I mean, and coupled with the creating a uniform, it really sounds like he kind of wanted, like, these are my children. <laughs> Go, children, put on your weird tall hats and your double-breasted coats. You can't call them lapels. There's something else. But put them on and, <laughs> and remember me. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so while his books were being published, at the time, the main way that chefs would learn their craft is through apprenticeship and mimicking techniques that they saw others do. Um, and it was really like learn by watching and then repeating. And recipes existed, but they weren't very standardized or organized at all. And there were no formal culinary schools in France until much later in the century. And prior to him, there was no comprehensive effort to categorize what was French cuisine at the time. At that time, the French cuisine was very specific to high society, and it was called cuisine française, or hot cuisine. And this involved like hundreds of new techniques for the time, lots of expensive ingredients, um, and teams of chefs to execute it. Like One of the, the things that was just assumed in any of his books was that you would be using the best ingredients, and the expense was no matter. Wow pretty much yeah um, yeah it has all the rings of celebrity Mm -hmm. uh 
His recipes were described as rich in butter and cream, luxurious, decorative, and extremely fussy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can see that too. Thanks to our friend Karim, uh, this style of French cuisine has really spanned the whole globe because he bothered to write it down and systematize it. Yeah. He bo- broke it down and developed it by categorizing. He's famous for coining the term mother sauces. Have you ever heard of those? I don't think so. Or I might know the definition, but not the that phrase. So basically, he broke down this this style of um, cuisine francaise uh, to have four different mother sauces. Basically, the sauces from which all other sauces are made, or oh, okay. are variants of. So one of them is bechamel sauce, which you've almost certainly had. It's like a creamy dairy sauce. If you've yep. had mac and cheese, you've had yep. bechamel. Um, and then there's hollandaise. And there's a couple other ones. Yeah. I, I saw a few different lists of what the different mother sauces are. He, um, Karim came up with four and then his, not his protege, but the person who continued and carried the mantle yeah. of formalizing this kind of cuisine added a fifth one. I know. No, I'm just imagining that this follow-up, like his protege is like walking around being like, oh, I think we should make a, a fifth mother sauce. What What do you think, Karem? And he holds Karem's skull up and goes, yeah, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> People are like, well, there's Karem again. Those two, inseparable. That does make sense because the other guy was around about 100 years after Yeah. Um, Karem was famous. He could be using the skull the whole time. Yeah, I, I like the sound of that. And then in his cookbooks, it's the pictures of him and then the skull next to him. Yeah. <laughs> Just like on his shoulder, like a little parrot. About the authors. <laughs> so some other things he was famous for is that he may or may not have been the first person to pipe meringue through a pastry bag, which oh. is pretty cool. He perfected the cream puff. He learned to melt and mold sugar like glass. So he, he may or may not have been the first one to do these things, but he was definitely the first one to document it. Yeah, and make and it honestly, a mainstream of high high cuisine. Mm-hmm. So Fine dining. So really, he... So I can kind of contextualize all this. So he really learned about the architecture first and would make centerpieces. It was really his time working for uh, Napoleon's... Uh, aid. Yeah. Aid that he actually learned how to couple that, like the architecture with the flavor as well. Because like in all the shows mm-hmm. and stuff, you know, like Great British Baking Show, when they do the patisserie, like it has to look good and taste good. So like- Well, the- I think that's the evolved version. So okay. he had an interest in architecture and that led to his over-the-top centerpieces that he was famous for, but those weren't really eaten. And that was his entree- yeah. into um, working in kitchens and learning about the more savory side. And he was also working in a patisserie, so he knew how to do the sweet stuff at the time. Okay. So the centerpieces made him famous at the time, and then he learned all this knowledge, and then he systematized it and wrote it down, which is really where his legacy is. Oh, okay. So it's not like, okay. I just wanted to check. So- yeah, so he was a big innovator as well, but um, his biggest thing was that he wrote it down. Yeah, okay. So that things could be shared in different ways. He was actually one of the first, or no, he was the first cookbook author to use the phrase, you can try this for yourself at home. (laughs) (laughs) But in French, so it sounds fancier. Yeah, but also it sounds like, you know, he also doesn't really quite believe that they're going to do it as well as him, too. It certainly has that, like, you can do this yourself at home. I mean, 
you know, it's at home is certainly not a uh, is certainly not Napoleon's kitchen, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's okay. You can try it at home. That's sassy. That's really it is pretty sassy. That that I've always took that phrase to mean like encouraging, but that really does have this little <laughs> little sassy edge to that sword. Well, I think I think his audience was supposed to be other chefs who worked in people's homes. Yeah. And things like that. So I don't know. I don't know. Or it could be a translation error. I don't know. Um, so that that's about it. He worked for the Russian Emperor Alexander the First. He worked for the Russian Princess Catherine Bagration and several other lords, princes, ambassadors all across Yo- Europe. I almost said all across yogurt. Um before his last job was working in the kitchens of Baron James de Rothschild. Um, he was also a big proponent, a pro, I can't speak, Propon- a big proponent of service a la Francis, which from reading the descriptions of it is basically, do you remember that feeling you had the first time you watched Harry Potter and they were in the Great Hall and just like bowls and bowls and plates and platters, just like heaping things everywhere? Mm-hmm. That is service a la Francis. Just a smorgasbord, just like tons and tons of food presented all at once. No courses, everything at the same time. Talking hat. Talking hats. That told you what table you had to sit at. New friends, feeling afraid. All those things. Yeah. What else was there? Ghosts. Ghosts. A poltergeist. Mm -hmm. Giant Um, men. Giant, yeah. Like an eight foot tall crazy wild looking bearded man a ceiling that was enchanted to show what the sky outside looked like mm-hmm. owls like that. carrying in your mail <laughs> including flying broomsticks and <laughs> and newspapers whose people moved on them just like that all that wonder huh. that overload that overwhelming thing I wonder what a Harry Potter paper would have looked like covering like the whole French Revolution. Because with the characters inside, just you know, have their head cut off and pick it up and be like, oh, "Look at me." Maybe. And are they stuck in that moment too? They. I don't know. I really. It's a kind of a weird line because, like, because like, maybe you'd want it to like restart so you could capture the beheadings over and over again, or yeah. it's just like they the, cut it off the first time and then. The rest of the picture is them just like, well, I guess I got ahead now. So they, it seems to fall into a few categories. Like how early do you need to take the picture so that by the time the newspaper is delivered, the important part of the photo is happening? (laughs) Well, see, this is the thing that doesn't like, oh my God, you're delighted. I am delighted. This is very (laughs) off topic. It's great. Yes. Well, I think the school of thought is that the portraits are more capable of like conversation action they have more agency yeah because they're not snapshots and the yeah and the yeah exactly (laughs) no and the and the pictures just yeah they don't talk really they just are kind of like weird depictions but i don't think they have like yeah they don't really have a will of their own i guess so i guess it's almost like movies yeah or like a little hologram card Uh, (laughs) and this was in contrast to the service a la russe which is like the Russian way, mm-hmm. where you where diners would be given a menu. Yeah. So Karem was like, nah, I get to choose what's on the table. And it's all coming out at the same time. And um, I'll, I'll end this description of Karem's legacy with a quote. He said, when we no longer have good cooking in the world, we will have no literature. 
nor high and sharp intelligence, nor friendly gatherings, nor social harmony. Noel, if you were to write a cookbook, uh-huh. how would you make sure it's all about you? I think I would write it like as a as a romance novel, but like a lot of the description in the paragraphs like are just about how to cook the cake. Like, so I would be a pastry. Mm-hmm. I would be uh, a pastry on a you know on a con not a conquest on on just like a, a mission. Yeah, almost like uh, Mamma Mia, just kind of hanging around one summer and meeting all these other pastries. But I would describe it like a romance novel. Not sure which one fathered your pastry children. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that just like that. (laughs) And we would sing ABBA songs. And um, No, but it would be the description like, the baguette turned around slowly. He could see the hollandaise sauce. It was shining over the croissants, hard buttered crust that had been cooked from for three minutes on <laughs> four hundred degree heat. No, I've got a book recommendation for you. If this is the kind of stuff you want, it's it's got all the angst of a romance novel, but um, it's not as sexually explicit. Mm-hmm. As the book, you're, as the cookbook you're describing. Uh, all right, all um, right. But like water for chocolate. Like water for chocolate. Mm-hmm. It's a cookbook romance. Lighthearted, like. No. <laughs> it's not lighthearted. Well, I mean, in the sense, it's so it's not so it's not sexualized, but it's not for kids or like young adults. No, um, it might be for young adults, but it, it's like a classic book. Classic book. It's got some magical realism. It's good. You might enjoy it if you're looking for a little romance and recipes together. Well, no, because I have the capability of doing such a project and I have very little interest in it. So this was just in the vein of the hypothetical. Oh, okay. Well, readers, readers, listeners, listeners who are readers. Readers of subtext and (laughs) thought. The tone is very different from what Noel was describing. But if you're looking for romance and recipes together, like Water for Chocolate is your book. And if you're looking for me to write that book, just let me know and I'll think about it. All right. If I'm making a cookbook that's all about me, I would make every single dish in my image. Oh. Mm -hmm. I'd make some pieces montes that are just me. You made all those words up. No, it's a French phrase. Oh, okay. (laughs) <laughs> that I used multiple times in my story. Yeah, I didn't want to call you okay. out until now, though. Oh, all right. <laughs> but yeah, everything would be in my image. Uh, cakes, pies, fruit salads, pasta dishes. Everything's a self-portrait, because I am the noblest form of art. I'd have a hashtag so people can post their recipes that they made that are also in my image. Mm. And then I'd take Instagram by storm which is today's equivalent of uh, the, the, of the, the printing press. press. Yes. <laughs> I think you'd have a lot of difficulty getting a consistent, like would it kind of be almost like various interpretations of art via these, uh, these pastries? Because like this fruit salad versus the cake versus the pie, they might look very different based on the... How you put them together? So oh, would yeah. it be more like abstract, like Picasso homage versus like? 
I hyper realism. I don't think I would go so far as abstract, but I mean, we could have some impressionism. We could have some photorealism. We could have some a really droopy, sad-looking cape called depressionism. Yep, we have that too. As long as it's got my face on it. <laughs> you did not. You just sat staring off into space well, for like three seconds. I misheard you, and I thought you said cape. Oh yeah, I did. I did um, kind of butcher that. I misheard you, and I got confused. But then I was like, no, I know what he's going for. Yes, yeah, we'll take a depression cake as well. Depressionism. Depressionism cake. As long as it's got my face on. Mm-hmm. So I am going to talk about bowling because Jack and I have joined a bowling league. Mm-hmm. We are not good, not good, but only the top four scores count. So, well, you were in that, right? Was I? I? I'm pretty sure because I think I was like fifth with my whopping score of 82. Yeah, because I think I was below you with 70 in fifth. So, yeah, I, I think you were in the top four. Yeah. Or if not, it was like fifth and sixth. We were we were in the middle of the pack. We were close. All right, room to climb. People to take down. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so I actually was thinking, you know what? I'm going to look up a little bit about bowling today. And uh, so I'm just going to take you through some... Uh, fun little facts about it. Ooh, I have a fun fact about bowling, too, yes. but I'll wait until it's relevant to one of your facts. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. thank you. Alright, so, high level, if you had to take a guess, when the first kind of, uh, you know, when the first kind of recording of, not necessarily bowling, but just, like, a games involving you know, bowls and balls and uh, pins came about. Mm, 1300s. 1300s. Okay. Now, wind that 1300s back to 5000 BC. Ooh, okay. Yes. Were they using skulls? They were not, unfortunately. <laughs> Darn it. But no, it was uh, apparently like just the the kind of game. Gen- general just, idea like, of yeah, knock just stuff the general down. idea of just yeah, like take a ball and knock things down with us. Propagated like all over the world. But you know, the the base of it I think is rooted in Egypt. So they've found artifacts from five thousand BC, three thousand BC, etc. So they they don't know like the rules of the game, but it's kinda they can mm. sort of figure it out. Um cool. but even as far away, um there are Aborigine tribes that ha- also have a bowling game and they have been so far sort of isolated, but they have a game uh called Cooley, which is basically they would make these balls and they would roll or throw them at the other team's ball in an attempt to break it. Like, so it was just kind of a back and forth of just, you know, no pins, but... It's like how all cats like to knock things off ledges. All people like to knock bowlers. stuff over with other stuff. Yeah. So I don't know if necessarily all the forms of bowling we see today originated in Egypt or are they just separately evolved from other civilizations just kind of making up games and throwing stuff at other stuff but so today we see a ton of different types of bowling in the US we see 10 pin bowling uh, and I think the UK there's nine pin bowling in Italy they don't have bowling per se but they have the uh, they have bocce. So a lot of cultures have sort of developed their own 
concept of this game. Now, it's not clear necessarily if this came all from Egypt or if it was just individual cultures just slowly building up their own versions of it. Uh, the Romans had their own version of bowling, but really the the modern version as we know it came about in Germany in 400 AD. It was a uh, it was actually called I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this. The game Knock them down, but no. with a German accent. <laughs> Knock no, them they, down. They were called. Uh, it was, I guess, called Kegler's Kegel. It was this idea of it was a cleansing ritual where the they would knock down just these pins with the ball representing. Uh, it was an anti-pagan sentiment of uh, just bowling them over with the the Bible. I assume. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly. Uh, I'm just thinking of the carnival carnival game where you try and knock over a milk jug. Mm -hmm. And it's impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, It's rigged. So those were sort of the ancient worlds. So this German sport, Roman sport, Egypt sport, those are the ancient forms of bowling. So now we get into the more modern forms of bowling. uh, That uh, So Italy developed bocce. Germany had this uh, Kegel, which I believe slowly became popular throughout the rest of Europe. And the British, in particular, were very weird about bowling because there were so many... um, It just got treated so differently from just almost century to century. You mean it wasn't a religious right anymore? It was not treated as a religious right. It was it was treated as a sport, and I believe even in Germany it had uh, developed into uh, a sport rather than a, a ritual. Mm-hmm. And in the 14th century, bowling was actually banned entirely in England because it was deemed as a distraction from archery, which I <laughs> guess with, I don't, I think... Was the Hundred Year War around then or something? But I believe that archery was super important in wars with the French. And so bowling was actually <laughs> considered a useless distraction for uh, for the the English. Oh, that's funny. That's like parents being like, stop playing video games nope. and do your homework. No comic books. Ah, the devil's in those pins. I mean, I mean, that's, I guess, how the Germans felt about it. But, but in the 16th century... Stop doing sport for King. merriment and only do sport for destruction. King Henry the Eighth, Henry the Eighth, I am, I am. I like bowling on the alley lanes, but I don't want to be the same as the lower class. So I'm gonna ban bowling for only the upper class. Really? Um, yeah, he did. What? Which is a bummer. Which what is a such a bummer. Yeah, he loved the sport so much that he took it away from everyone. It kind of went full circle from being banned as a distraction to being a luxury that had to be banned from the poor. This is only my distraction, not your distraction. So by, I believe the 17th century, it had become back to being a sport of the of the lower class, of the people. But can you just imagine the like speakeasies where you'd be like, yeah, I know an underground bowling game. You need the password. It's called Turkey. Cool. I hope you're like editing this, Max. And then another last fun fact about this is that the uh, I'm going to talk about the transition from nine pin to ten pin bowling and the the differences Wait. between that. 
Does the UK still use nine pins instead of 10? I believe so. So the nine pin would be a, a diamond shape. And in the US, it's the triangle shape to fit the, the 10 pins. The only state that has nine pin bowling is Texas. And I'm going to get into more of why that might have happened. Oh, my God. I hope when they seceded from the United States, they were like, we got to differentiate ourselves somehow. Get me that extra pin. No. <laughs> it, would, it would be funny if and that. And then they got reabsorbed. If that really uh, became. And they were the, like, we're sticking with our 10 pins like good Texans. <laughs> no. Nine pins. I mean, not 10. 10 nine. Ah! Nine pin bowling actually apparently came by the the number of pins would vary game to game, three to seventeen. Martin Luther was wait, wait. Sorry. Nine pin bowling. So nine pin varied. bowling so bowling at this time of of the time that kings were playing it and taking it away from the the poor, the there was no real set amount of pins. The the game concept was the same, but the actual amount of pins you'd use in a game oh. varied from I think it was three to seventeen. Mm-hmm. It only actually started becoming formalized as nine pins in the seventeenth century by one Martin Luther. Yeah. That same Martin Luther of the theses? Oh, that rascal, that Reformation rascal, Martin Luther. The founder of the Protestant Church? Uh-huh. That very same Martin Luther? Yes. I can only say, yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> Apparently, a little fun fact is he set the, the pins to nine, um, which became why? just the standard in Europe. Uh, I didn't actually have time to look up the reason why. Okay. It's probably just because he was like, well, buds, I've got nine pins at my house, so why don't we just always play with nine pins? I want to have the cool house that everyone comes over to play bowling. Yeah. I mean, that's as good of a reason as any. You said it with confidence. I did. Yeah. So let's talk about bowling's transition to the United States. Okay. So the reason that bowling took hold in the United States was, was populated by a lot of British immigrants, but it was also populated by a lot of German immigrants. And so you have these two populations, the sport is is pretty popular in, and so nine-pin bowling really starts to take off in the late 18th, early 19th century. Mm-hmm. So this is where it gets interesting. This is the legend or lore of how nine-pin bowling became differentiated from ten-pin bowling. New England kind of being that puritanical influence that uh, would keep blue laws around and would keep uh, various other vices in check. Bowling was sort of considered a vice because there was a lot of gambling associated with it. Distracts it distracts you from archery. It was fun and free play and for some reason was therefore evil. So uh, there were laws that started to be put on the books that said uh, nine-pin bowling outlawed. So not the in the uh, letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law, they started adding <laughs> a tenth pin that was not covered by the law. Oh, that's and, wonderful. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's back and forth on whether that was the actual origin there. Um, but that one is the one I like to believe because that is just shocking it to the man. Oh, I hope that's true. So, um, yeah, just I think in that tradition, that's why 10-pin bowling became um, super popular. And that the I, I think the only reason it was allowed in Texas was that they they only allowed it. But like there was like a fine or a, a fee you had to pay to, to keep a nine pin at establishment open so i think it was them just trying to be like ah we got our oil money and our nine pin bowling penalty money coming in we're rich (laughs) nine pin gold Ah." 
that's weird. I also, so this is more of a side note, and this is pure conjecture on my part. I have no basis for this, just what I inferred from it, is when we were in Wisconsin, I think that's why bowling is so popular out there in the Midwest, because it had such a huge uh, German immigrant population out oh, there. That's be. why the, the like the that's why cheese is so popular out there from one of my previous anachronismos uh last episode or a few episodes ago. Uh and I think that's probably also why bowling is so big out there. Um maybe. So that's the conclusion I drew from that. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, so that was I think probably some of the more fun interesting facts because uh there were cool things that also emerged such as bowling congress. What's that? It's what convention? it sounds like. It convention was just, for bowlers? Yeah. I think it, uh, I'm missing the first letter of it. It was, I think, ABC something like uh, Allied Bowling Congress or something. Uh, it's just so that they could create rules and tournaments, regulations about size of the lanes, things like that. Um, and yeah, it did not allow women. So the women created their own uh, international or national bowling league for women and so yeah it was just kind of cool they're two congressional bodies overseeing how bowling was played in america hmm, that's pretty cool um, i'm gonna do my fun fact because i don't mm-hmm. think your story goes as contemporary uh my grandpa was a pin setter as a child what back when people were still putting the pins in and it wasn't machines it's funny that I mean I wasn't gonna go too much on that, but yeah, just the idea that 19th century there were like patents they would make because they recognized how inefficient hiring children setting, to reset yeah. pins was. So actually, yeah, it was. Uh, I think the um, for candle pin bowling, which for any non New England listeners, that's a variant of bowling that's popular in uh, you know from like Connecticut up through Maine, just New England. You'll you'll find a few lanes here and there. Um, but yeah, the, the pin setting machines, I think were first really, the first effective ones were from the 1940s, like right after the, uh, the war. That's pretty cool. So, um, yeah. And I mean, you know, that, I think those were some of the more interesting sort of stories and elements about bowling, um, and how it kind of, it went from such being a just ancient, almost inherent trait of just play and you know, kind of sport and how it slowly became, you know, both diversified, but in a way consolidated into the forms that we see today with a few cool things along the way. Noel, yes. we are the inheritors of bowling. We are. We are what it has evolved into. That's... Mm-hmm. We are the models of sportsmanship and skill that centuries of bowling have led to. Jackie's picking up a knife. Here for the beer forever! Oh my god, she she stabbed me in the cheese. The cheese I had on me, she stabbed it. Mmm. Mmm. Ah, ah, jeez. But, uh, yeah, so 20th century, obviously, bowling leagues were super big. They were considered this kind of cool social sports uh, league event that, you know, just... The work, the working class could just relax and do and have fun with. Really, was not super badly impacted by prohibition. Um, they, it's not like they shut down or anything. They kept on bowling without the booze. Yeah, I would say that the biggest change now is that you know league participation has kind of dropped uh, overall. I did a side by side of the drop in bowling participation versus the melting of the polar ice caps, and <sighs> the polar ice caps are still happening faster. Uh. They're they're both going down. They're they're it's both it's a downward trend either way. <laughs> they're not related. I just was curious to see which one was going down faster. Um, but you know, 
maybe bowling will pick up, but like right now, you know, casual social sports thing. It's not as big into the, you know, very competitive leagues and, you know, everyone in the, in the factory or the office going out and doing it, but you know, it's still super fun. And it's the, uh, it's kind of that dip in popularity that has kind of made it evolve into sort of trying to do those like, uh, black light bowling and try to kind of put fun, just variation around it to, uh, yeah, keep holding on to it. I have a, another family fun fact. Uh-huh. My Aunt Sue, who is um, notoriously scatterbrained, was on a bowling team for a long time. And they named the team Where's Sue? Because she was never around when it was her turn to bowl. And they would just say Where's Sue all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Where was she? Did Probably just... talking with someone. Oh, okay. Somewhere. So she didn't. She showed up to the alley. She. Just I mean, went... who knows? She's always late to stuff. Oh. She might have been late. I don't think she used to be as uh, scattered as she is now, though. Yeah. I don't know. I, I. So I have a simple question to 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 wrap up this anachronismo. Okay. What would you call? So I mentioned that uh, three. If you get three strikes in a row in uh, bowling, it's called a turkey. Apparently, if you mm-hmm. get six and nine, it's adjective plus turkey. I think. Nine is a golden turkey. I forget what six is, but if you had to pick an alternative for what three X's could mean, and it can't be porn or whiskey, uh, what would you uh, what would you kind of call it if you get three strikes in a row? Oh, Vin Diesel. Damn it! I was gonna. It's funny. I was actually gonna say uh, Ice Cube from Triple X Two State of the Union. <laughs> Where they didn't get Vin Diesel, so that's as good of a wow, yeah, that's as good of a ending as you're gonna get. All right, uh, Max, I'm sure that you're gonna put in the the hello. This is Max. Uh, this is roughly halfway through the show. You know oh, the right. you know it far it. better than either of us, and you could kind of take a few shots back Speak at for us. Yourself, Noel. Yeah. What? Speak for yourself, Noel. What? That he he knows it better than us. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you can do it, Jackie. <laughs> no, no, Jackie. The floor is yours. This is anachronismo. Feel free to email us at itsanachronismo at gmail We would love to hear from you, listeners. If you have any fan fiction, if you have any topic suggestions, we'd love to hear it. Please check out other shows on the Make Fun Network. It's all fun. You should listen to them all. Including the top five of death and this rules, this sucks. Mm-hmm. Those are good ones. Max, we did it. We did it without you. I I, I was doubtful. I was doubtful because of the way that you, you rattle it off. But Jackie, Jackie has been paying attention. We did it. We did. We did it. Mm-hmm. Good job, guys. I'm proud of you. Triple X, State of the Union. Woo! This is going to do it for us on Anachronismo. Wait, you did it too fast. I couldn't join uh, in. This, wait, you do it. Because I did it in the start. You Okay. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us here tonight on Anachronismo. Uh, walk around, uh, um, be very 
You're going to have to edit this, Max. So it makes me sound clever. Brought to you by Make Fun Network.